Well, I have an absolutely wonderful passage to share with you this morning. The, all we need to do is read it. It'll preach itself. Um, my name's John. As Justin said, I'm married to uh, Debbie back there at the help desk, and we have uh, had the honor of attending uh, our wonderful church for five years, and uh, I'm also very, very honored to serve as an elder. So our passage today is Philippians 2, 1 to 11, and uh, this is a passage, passage that has an enormous amount to say about uh, relational issues, unity in relationships. Uh, do any of you have any uh, niggling squabbles in your household? No, not here. No, uh, no classic toothpaste wars. You know, she squeezes from the bottom, he squeezes from the top. Well, in my family, we solved that by buying two tubes of toothpaste. <laughs> At what point does um, uh, stuff lying around the home become clutter? And uh, at what point does it just make it feel like home? Well, in, in our household, we, we don't argue about such things. We clarify. Uh, Debbie clarifies to me that the purpose of a shoe rack is to put the shoes in a straight line and to store shoes. And, uh, and I clarify to Debbie that shoes are much better by the front door because, you know, in the interest of saving time and uh, efficiency of, you know, getting out quicker, it just it makes it go a lot, whole lot smoother. So if you come to our house, you'll see the compromise. You'll see one pair of shoes only by the front door. So, so that's how we work it out. But... Um, whether it's in our homes or whether it's uh, at the world at large, I don't need to tell you that conflict has been, a con has been a constant in all ages and at all times for many families and including, can you believe it, churches. And this passage is actually directed to the church of the Philippians and uh, Paul is noticing that there's some divisions, there's some problems in the church and this passage provides some very powerful principles for solving the problem of disunity. So let's read it. So if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Each of you must look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, with such a wonderful passage like this, we need you to come and be the spokesperson. Help us to get out of the way and find out what you intend for us through this, these wonderful words. In Jesus' name, amen. So how can we get along with others? Relational issues are something that we all face. How do we do it? Well, Paul tells us very clearly here, as we look at verses one and two, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, these are the things that we have as Christians, then complete my joy, and here is how we do it. We become unified by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Then, as the passage goes on, we find that this mind theme continues. We're told in verse five how we get this same mind that precipitates unity. How do we do it? In verse five, it says we get this mind by having the same mind as Christ by following our Lord's pattern of humility by coming to earth from heaven. And this is what theologians call it's the doctrine of the incarnation. But as we examine the flow of Paul's teaching through these wonderful 11 verses, I want to share with you some crucial principles that actually woke me up like cold water on my face this past week about the power of humility to create unity. So by the end of the next two hours, no, 30, 30 minutes, 30 ministerial minutes, um, I'd like us to see three things. I want us to see how humility's opposite is pride, verses three and four. I want us to see how humility's source is Christ, verses five to eight, and I want us to see humility's result, the end to which humility points, and that is, amazingly, glorification in verses nine to 11. Okay, so number one, humility, I don't think it's a big surprise to any of you that humility is the opposite of pride. Paul starts off with two sets of contrasting phrases in verses three and four. Notice that the negatives are followed by the positives. Verse three, it says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, which is contrasted with the next phrase, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And then in verse four, there's a second contrast. It says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, contrasted with, but also to the interests of others. So there's three great enemies of pride here that are listed. Uh, sorry, three great enemies of humility that are listed here. Number one, selfish ambition. Two, conceit. And three, inordinate self-regard. And so what we're being told here is that pride and humility are opposites. Now what I'd like to do is to spend a few minutes uh, looking at the disease of pride. Because uh, this is something that really surprised me as I studied this week. There's actually, when we look at the biblical account of pride, it is much more complex and nuanced and frankly scary 
than I had thought. Now, when we use the word pride in our daily life, it can have all sorts of a wide, wide ranges of meaning, can't it? We can say, well, I take pride in doing excellent work. Or you can say you're proud of your kids. And uh, using pride in that way is, is, can be a good thing, depending on our motives. But pride, I don't think I need to tell you, as defined in the Bible, is extremely dangerous. In fact, many of the greatest theologians will insist that pride is the gateway sin that leads to all of the other sins. So let's look closely. We're going to look closely at these three indicators of pride, the enemy of humility. Do nothing from... We start off with selfish ambition. Number two, do nothing from conceit. Number three, do nothing from excessive self-interest. So let's give a little background on how this fits in with the biblical doctrine of pride. The, when the Bible talks about pride, it's not just one thing. It's actually a, an interaction of several components. Let me explain. Uh, when, when did the disease of pride begin for human beings? When did it start? Well, I think you, most of you could tell me it started with the serpent's suggestion way back in Genesis 3 as he was tempting Eve to eat forbidden fruit. You remember what the serpent promised way back in Genesis 3. As Eve is eyeing this fruit that God has forbidden, the serpent says, if you eat it, you will not surely die. That's an outright lie. But then he goes on and says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. There's gonna be a fundamental shift in the way that you see the world. That held true, but not in the way that Eve thought. And three, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And of course, you know the outcome of that when she partook of the fruit, there was death. Death ever since that's been passed down to the whole human race. Now, we don't have time to examine these incredibly profound verses, profound on many levels. But I want you to note that from that time forward to the present, as the human race has proliferated and grown at present, approaching eight billion people, all of us have been infected with a kind of pride that has as its deepest drive the goal to break out of the boundaries that God has established and to, in essence, propel us to become like God. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, what does God deserve? Look at the book of Revelation. When Jesus is being praised in heaven, a song is sung to him with all of the attributes that only God deserves. It says, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. But ever since the fall, every human being has been infected with an insatiable need to lift ourselves up and to seize for ourselves the very qualities that only rightly belong to God. We just listed them. Humans say, worthy am I to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And this infects the way we think. For example, our 
imaginations can be consumed by a kind of pride that psychologists call an idealized self-image. That is, in our minds, in our imaginations, we try to see ourselves in this image of perfection that we demand for ourselves, that we believe we need in order for us to be admired, highly valued by those around us. It, this idealized, uh, idealized imagination, self-image, tries to force us to seek for respect, to be in the limelight, to be admired by others, to be socially recognized, to bask in the glow of the praise of those around us, and to enjoy the prestige and favor of our peers. See, pride is an illegitimate attempt to push ourselves up above those around us and to achieve glory by generating, by self-generating, generating our own glory by breaking out of the boundaries that God has set for us. But self-glorification is not all there is to pride. When we try to become something we are not, there is always problems. Pride always triggers an opposite reaction. It triggers self-doubt and inner shame so that when we try to break out of the limitations that God has set for us by lifting ourselves up and seizing the glory and honor that only God deserves, right at the same time we become insecure. And deep down, we are beset with these feelings of inferiority. We know in a very deep way that the truth about ourselves has been violated. We have this unease, this dissatisfaction by, this, by the trend towards superiority and then the countervailing trend towards inferiority. And it says right here in this passage, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Their eyes were opened all right, but not with the godlike qualities that they had been promised, but with a glaring sense of their shame, of their inferiority. The verse goes on to say in Genesis 3, and they knew they were naked. So when our pride system stretches us, pulling us between the need for, 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 for perfection and adulation from others, that our idealized self-image demands on the one hand, and then when our, the insecurities set in that show and expose our flaws, we claw ourselves to death inside. That's our natural condition. And we are perpetually victimized by a, a sense that we're insignificant, Nobody notices us. We desperately seek affirmation and validation. And so what's the result? There's the third component of pride, and that is that we try to cover up our flaws, our weaknesses, our failings with masks, with appearances, that everything's okay, that actually we are more than we really are. And we see this in this verse with, of course, Adam and Eve realizing they were naked and trying to cover it up by knitting together loincloths made of fig leaves. It was like an empty substitute for glory. Now, with that background, we're in a better position to understand our passage. Let's go back to verse 3. Is it there? Okay. All right. Verse 3. Do nothing from... Selfish ambition. So selfish ambition 
conveys the idea of someone kicking, clawing, biting, up, biting their way up the ladder of success regardless of the dirt that they're shoveling on other people as they travel up the hierarchy. That's the idealized self-image. That's the part of us that wants to become as God. We try to manufacture our self-esteem by lifting ourselves up as an object of admiration and positive feedback for those around us. Then, Paul goes on to the second enemy of pride. Do nothing from conceit. This word in the Greek is fascinating. It's actually a combination of two words. Two words, empty and glory. It li literally means empty glory. The King James Version nails it when it says, when it translates this word as vain glory. Useless, empty glory. And empty glory is the name for the masks, the fig leaves, the attempt to project an image of competence that's more than we are, that really is covering up a sense of emptiness, a starving for affirmation, inside with the appearance of success, with the facade of hollow bubbles instead of real value. And that real value is the substantial glory that only God can give. It's like empty bubbles instead of uh, substantial bowling balls, put it that way. As a result, we are caught up in the trap of excessive self-centeredness in verse four, with each of us looking out to his own interests. In the words of Alan Bloom, really good quote, he says, our condition is such that each of us loves ourselves but wants others to love us more than they love themselves. It's a very pithy quote. So there's our condition. How do we overcome this pride and how do we attain the number one virtue? Because like pride being a gateway um, sin, virtue, uh, Humility is a gateway virtue into righteousness. It's, uh, again, the same th theologians argue that humility is where true righteousness and true growth in what God wants for us, be us begins. So how do we get that? Well, the second point that I want to share with you is that humility's source is Christ. That's what we have to recognize. The antidote to relational difficulties caused by pride is humility that has its source in Christ, but in some really amazing ways. Now let's, uh, how, how do you understand the definition of humility? Uh, let's be clear, there, there's, that word is sometimes used in a counterfeit way. There's many counterfeit substitutes. Um, right off the bat, humility is not denigrating or minimizing the gifts or strengths that you have been given. It's not like pushing yourself down. It's not like, humility's not low self-esteem or feeling inferior or putting yourself down, but rather humility, and this really surprised me when I studied it, humility is rather a realistic truthfulness that is put in the service of others in a selfless way. Let me repeat that. The definition of humility is a realistic truthfulness that is put 
in the selfless service of others. That's, that's the biblical de definition. Humility is realistically, accurately, truthfully eva evaluating your abilities. And then, and this is key, realizing that all we possess, everything that we have has been given to us by God primarily to be used as a channel to give to him, give glory to him, and to serve others in the form of selfless service. So that's what humility is. Uh, Paul in Romans 12, three makes this clear when talking about the gifts, he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Okay, so by implication, we're not to think more low about ourselves than we should, and we're not to think too highly about ourselves, but we're to look at ourselves with sober, accurate, realistic judgment and put that, our gifts to work in selfless service. Have uh, any of you here read uh, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity? Good, oh, super. I hear a lot of you talking about him. I, I'm so, so glad there's uh, so many uh, C.S. Lewis enthusiasts. C.S. Lewis captures this perfectly in some classic quotes in Mere Christianity. He's, uh, he asks the question, um, how do we know what a humble person looks like? And he, he captures this flavor of selflessness over uh, selfless other-centeredness of humility really, really powerfully. He says, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, swarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. Humility is not to think less of yourselves, you remember the quote, but thinking of yourself less. Powerful words. So humility is not thinking more of yourself than is warranted by the facts, but it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Well, maybe some of you uh, have heard sermons like this before and you kind of responded as I did uh, when I went through uh, uh, crisis of faith in my late teens, maybe you've thought words like this. Yeah, John, those words about humble selflessness sound so nice, so charming, until you are bitten hard by a relational crisis, like a relational crisis I'm in right now. Then those words about selfless service and humility seem unachievable. When, say, a couple, a couple whose uh, first fire of romance has long cooled and the toothpaste wars have escalated into uh, some serious arguments uh, and a growing despair in the relationship, thoughts like and words like, my spouse just doesn't get it and never will, or scripts that play out in arguments like, you did so say that, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Well, if I did, that's not what I meant. 
doesn't, or it doesn't matter what I do, I will never be good enough for you. Or why are you making a mountain out of a tiny molehill? You're exaggerating. Or conflict over money issues. Why did you buy that? Well, it was on sale. Well, don't you know that we're going broke from all the money we are spending on these great sales? <laughs> and on and on and on goes the conflict. How can we be selfless in the midst of those biting, painful words? And the answer is, we can't. Unless you ground your humility in the right source. Ground your humility in the source of Christ. And Paul shows us what this means in verse 5. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now notice what Paul is not saying here when he says, have this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this is really important. He's not saying that we should just imitate Christ and, and behave like Christ, as important as that, end, as, as, important as that is. No, there's much more that, here. Notice the wording here. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, yours in Christ Jesus. Achieving the mind of Christ is not just imitating of Christ, it is accepting and appropriating what he has given us as we are in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian and you are in Christ and you read through the New Testament, uh, you will be amazed at how many times this phrase, in Christ, appears. Just in Paul's writing alone. What did Paul write? 13? I think, yeah, Paul wrote 13 of the New Testament epistles. Just in Paul's writings alone, he references this phrase, in Christ, a total of 164 times. And 10 times alone in this epistle to the Philippians. So the phrase in Christ is a key part of the Bible's teaching. What does it mean? To have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, means that as we are in Christ Jesus, we are knit together with Christ. John 15 explains this wonderfully. It's a, it's a knitting means like we are organically you link to Christ, like branches that are embedded in a tree. Powerful stuff here. John 15, 4 says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he that he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So when Paul says in verse 5, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, he's not just telling us to, to imitate the humility of Jesus, and that's important, but rather to be in Christ is a direct transfer of his nature from him to us. It's, a, it's part of the direct transfer of his life into us. 
like vines and branches. Now let's, let's follow the path that Christ's humility takes. Adam's pride, you remember, caused him to exalt himself. Christ's humility results in him lowering himself. Look at the sequence. We're going to go through the next few verses here. Verse 6. Christ was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let that sink in. What he's saying here is that Christ voluntarily gave up his rights as he held as God. Genuine humility shows a willingness to give up our rights. Christ voluntarily gave up the rights he held as God. Christ had everything, and he gave up the status that was his as God with all of the glory. But Adam didn't have a thing. Adam didn't attempt to give up anything. He tried to grasp and tried to seize a prestige that he was not entitled to. Let's keep going. Christ had everything. He was fully God, but in verse 7, it says, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Adam was an empty creature, tried to fill himself by exalting himself into the likeness of God, the exact opposite of Christ. So do you see this downward trajectory of humility? Humility always involves going low. But it continues. God starts off becoming a servant, he becomes a man, but the humbling continues in verse eight. Look what it says. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Adam was the exact opposite. He exalted himself by becoming disobedient, which led to his death and the death of all of the human race. And it took this humbling of Christ to come down into human form and to die on the cross as a penalty for our sins and to receive the punishment that we deserve. The core of the gospel right there. But the downward flow, the downward trajectory of humility doesn't just stop at the cross. Humility is part of a larger whole. Just like pride has different components, humility is part of something bigger. Humility's result is always, it's a promise, always, now to our third point, glorification. Verses 9 to 11. Look at verse 9. It starts off with, therefore. Now that word, therefore, is really significant. It means that there's a connection between what happened before and what's going to happen after. Humility is part of a larger package. And what is that package? God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus submitted to the will of his Father and humbled himself, the, the trajectory suddenly changes right at the resurrection and the glorification begins. And this is what God wants for us. This is what God intends. All who humble themselves will be glorified. What does James 4.10 say? It says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. What did Jesus promise? This is, this is like a law of life here. Those of you that have got a few trips around the sun like me, have you seen this work out in your own life and in, in the life of others? This is, a, this is a core, embedded, archetypal law of life. He says in Luke 18, Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself, that's the pride of Adam, will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. A famous preacher from the last century, I gotta make sure I get this right, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, he said, the way to heaven's thrones is through the basement. Isn't that great? To, to go up, you have to start by going down. And Paul, a little later in Philippians, talks about this glorification in Philippians 3.20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The same power that holds all of creation together, that same power that subjects everything to the will of God is gonna be used to glorify our bodies. And this glory is not like that empty, vain glory that we saw way back in verse three, hiding behind the mask of the fig leaves, so to speak. It's a substantial glory. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4.16 describes our glorification process in pungent, powerful detail. It says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, and uh, whether we like it or not, the human body begins to decline at about age 27. I'm sorry about that, but that's just the way it goes. So our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. The glorification process actually begins right now. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an, I love this term, eternal weight of glory. Eternal weight of glory. The Greek word here is doxa, and it actually means this kind of glory is actually heavy. You know, it's like 20 million pounds of gold. It's substantial. It's got real meat. Compare that to the vain glory, the empty glory of pride that we saw back in verse 3. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
And we find out in the glorification process that our primary goal is not to be like Adam, to lift ourselves up to receive the glory by seizing it. Our primary role in the glorification process, and this is really exciting, is to become what we were designed to be. And that was not to generate our own glory, to generate our own self-esteem, no. It's to receive glory from another and reflect the very Shekinah glory of God. Like, whoa. First Corinthians 3.18 says, for all of us reflect, there's that reflect part of it, all of us reflect the glory of God with unveiled faces. We are becoming more like him with ever increasing glory by the Lord's spirit. And that glorification as we humble ourselves before God, that glorification begins in this life and transforms us into Christ. I never realized this. Transforms us into Christ by becoming ever like him with ever increasing glory. That glory as it shines in our heart actually is the means, it's like a spiritual chemical reaction that transforms us into the likeness of Christ. So what's the takeaway from this passage? We've looked at the fact that humility and uh, pride are opposites. We've uh, looked at the importance of understanding that humility has to be sourced in Christ. We've looked at the result of humility, which is glorification. What's the takeaway? Well, we have to become humble. We have to give up trying to fill that emptiness between our need to become as God and exalting ourselves and that sense of inferiority, weakness, inferiority, that we hide behind our masks. We have to become humble and give up trying to fulfill that emptiness, fill up that emptiness with comparing ourselves to others. We have to give up our pride that puts us in, the, puts us in this vicious circle of not being satisfied with the good gifts that God has given us, but rather only wanting those good gifts if they're better than our neighbors. Now here's a test that I, I use on myself. And it's, it, I hate this test. It's like, like getting whacked by a two by four. All right, I'm a teacher. And I'm putting my heart and soul into teaching my uh, computer science class. You know, I really want to be a good teacher. Then I'm walking down the halls and I hear some 18 year old kids just raving about the teacher in the next room. And they just are like, oh man, he's so fantastic. Touched, you know, changed my life. Actually, uh, this is actually true. I you know, heard, heard people talking like this. All right, what is my reaction? What's, what's the test? Do I listen to that praise of my peer who has the same gift that I have? And do I feel just thrilled that another teacher is being successful? Or do I have this sense of, uh, I don't know, this niggling sense of anger that makes me want to look at that teacher and try to find flaws, 
figure out where their weak points are. They're not really that good. Anyhow, that's the test I use. I hate it. But wow, it sure exposes things. Uh, Tim Keller has, a, has a, just a marvelous, marvelous observation I don't want to close with. A truly gospel-humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but rather a gospel-humble person. The truly gospel-humble person is a self-forgetful person whose ego is just like his or her toes. It just works. It does not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The ego just works. Neither draws attention to itself. Here's one little test. The self-forgetful person would never be hurt particularly badly by criticism. It would not devastate them. It would not keep them up late. It would not bother them. Why? Because a person who is devastated by criticism is putting too much value on what other people think, on other people's opinions. So, first takeaway is become a truly gospel, humble person whose ego is like your toe. It just works. The second thing. I want you to take away is, and this requires faith. We have to really believe, we have to trust God when he says that our value and glory cannot be generated by our performance. Rather, our value and our glory has to be given to us from outside. That's to given us by God, by faith, we need to accept and believe the words of 1 Peter chapter 2, 9, when he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And we really become gospel humble people when we really, really can appropriate the truth that we are God's treasured possession, a change comes over us. And a lot of the fuel, a lot of the gasoline for the relational fires that we see at all levels is put out and our lives become immeasurably improved. Let's pray. Father, we... Thank you so much for this passage. And Lord, as we go out into the world this week, we ask that uh, you will invade our thought processes with your humility, with your incarnation. And Lord, please help us by faith to appropriate our status as being in Christ and therefore to receive all of the advantages and the power and the designs that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.